Hey guys, due to entirely foreseen, totally avoidable circumstances, Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is going to go on a two-week hiatus. We know this is a disappointment and that nothing can make up for it, that we alone send a shining beam of meaning into otherwise meaningless lives lived by rote. As an apology, we'll instead put out two episodes of an experimental thing we're doing called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata colon Podcast Guys Talking to Erratic Errata. So get hype! Podcast Guys takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk. Good morning, faithful reader. Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil, where a historian and a literature scholar tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as Did Cat just die? Will there be any repercussions for all of this? No, seriously. Did Cat just die? All part of the plan. O'Neill, fools, and witness my ascension to godhood! <laughs> Last words of Dread Empress Sinistra the Fourth, the Erroneous. So, in this chapter, we have a number of things happen. We have Cat running into uh, some old friends. We have a sort of three-way fight between Cat, the other claimants, and the Lone Swordsman. This goes poorly for Cat in many ways, and very well for her in another way. We get an introduction to one of Kat's favorite weapons. We get the setup for quite a bit of the story to come. The fight ends, of course, with Kat becoming Squire and shoving into motion events that will tear Callow apart. All in all, it's a pretty busy chapter, but most of it is just a big fight. A lot of fun. Last episode, I mentioned how I felt some of the dialogue was... Not the PGTE dialogue that we have come to know know and love. It leaned too comic in a way that didn't flow as it typically does, I said. Well, this chapter immediately rectifies it. I did not have to deal with that disquiet for long. The first words in the chapter are Tamika asking Catherine, your plan? To which the lone swordsman immediately replies, don't encourage her. There we go. It is, it is good. It, it's back to, sure, there's quips, there's banter, but there's more to it than that. And the Lone Swordsman, don't encourage her. Basically, Cat here is seen right through. They He sees exactly what she's doing and is just having none of it. And Catherine responds to this with a condescending smile. It 
normally a condescending smile is what you give somebody when they fail to grasp the entirety of your plan, which just pretend I used very heavy scare quotes on plan there, because honestly, what is Cat doing? Learning, or maybe even learning, if you will. And definitely struggling. That's later. Oh, sorry. Sorry, sorry, sorry. But she takes the opportunity to try to monologue in her favor. And admittedly, monologues can be used extraordinarily sparingly by the discerning antagonist. But Kat is not a discerning antagonist yet. She's a baby. And she goes into the monologue basically trying to buy herself time in a situation that's rapidly unraveling where time is the enemy. And she starts to speak, and immediately a scimitar comes within an inch of her throat. Rashid appears out of nowhere and attacks, and her first thought immediately upon that happening is, right, there's a reason long-lived villains don't make speeches. We don't see this problem again. She now knows. She has learned. Or at least learned. There's a time and a place for speeches, like you mentioned, and yeah, she's, she's figuring out that maybe this isn't the time. Probably could be the place, but definitely not the time. And speaking of swords nearly destroying somebody's head, the next part of the head, right? It's part of the head. This is canonically the case. <laughs> I've, I have spoken to multiple people with an anatomy. Anyway, the cat is attacked by the lone swordsman's sword, and... The sword attacks her. Right, the sword attacks her, sure. And cat's first... Impulse was to assume that the thing is definitely enchanted, quote-unquote. Cat has assumed Black's armor and weaponry are enchanted, and she was wrong there for one reason, and now she's assuming this sword is enchanted and is kind of wrong there, but for the opposite reason. Cat needs to—I mean, she's got magic sniffing powers or, you know, that, that kind of thing we've talked about. She really needs to hone in on when equipment is enchanted or not. She's missing the mark pretty drastically, and also getting pretty close to the mark on this one, at least. He says that it is definitely enchanted and not in a nice way. And it is discerning that there's something up with it, even if her technicalities are inexact. But I do have to say, it may not be enchanted, in massive quotes, in a nice way, but it's certainly enchanted in massive er quotes in a good way. Am I right? Because of the nature of the origin. Yeah. Of the and blade. that definitely checks out. Something is good and definitely not nice. That's very practical guide for you. Practical guide is ultimately just a long form essay that teaches the same lesson as the song. I know things now from Stephen Sondheim's into the woods. Is this the second time you've referred to all of Practical Guide as being a long-form essay about a different topic? On air, perhaps. I can't wait till we reach the end and find out what this essay is actually about. There's some back and forth with various weapons, daggers, crossbows, swords, and Cat gets a little skittish and starts moving out to enact the next step in her, what we'll generously call a plan, and in making this plan, we kind of see the birth of a legend. We see the birth of a big part of what Kat's known for for a long time. She thinks to herself, so let's set the place on fire and hide by the exit to stab anyone coming out in the back. Kat refines this strategy a bit. She 
perfects this strategy, honestly. But to see it be her more or less go-to tactic in this moment, it's it's nice to see young Cat figuring out what her trick will be. And I do mean trick, singular. Justification, we know. Matter only to the just. After the fight goes back and forth a little bit, there's some discussion. Cat realizes that Eris bribed at least a couple of the, the people coming for her, Chider and Tamika, um, to set them after Cat. And Cat says, you understand she's playing all of you, right? I said. Cat mm. says, you understand she's playing all of you, right? She's going to be rivals with whoever ends up being the squire. So she's trying to meddle in the claiming. This line I had no recollection of prior to this whirlwind reread. But it seems like a pretty important one where we're spending a lot of time talking about the nature of names and how they influence people and how people influence them. And that's a important part of this story. So that makes sense. But this is big that Eris is a rival to the role, whoever ends up taking it, not a claimant herself. And the thing that really is interesting here to me is Kat could sense the other claimants. That makes sense. You know where they are. You're about to directly fight them, sure. But she could also kind of sense Eris and know that there was knew that there was something different about it about her. I I don't recall this ever coming up again, where a named could sense their rival, because there are plenty of nemeses throughout the story, and I'm sure throughout Colernia that we don't necessarily see on screen. But just being aware of where your rival is, it's I'm just wondering why, in this instance, Eris made the cuts to be included in the little squire fight as a as another attached mantle, I suppose. I have not gone through all of the previous chapters with this question in mind. So perhaps something from before chapter 11 will unravel what I'm about to say entirely. In which case, whichever viewer finds out should mind their business and keep their mouth shut. But in Episode 11, Chapter 10, Menace. We discuss this, and in that text, it's not until Catherine is approaching Black's tent where we read, There was a light lit inside, and I was about to enter when I felt something pulse in the back of my head. The fourth feeling. The strange one. How had I not noticed earlier? I must have been more tired than I thought. But when we actually look at it, when we examine things, I think her claimant sense it's almost a radar awareness. She follows some of those pings to locate where claimants are hiding, except when Rashid is being Rashid. But she originally felt three things and a secret fourth thing that might help us later. She hunts down the claimants in chapter 10, and when she reaches the tent, she gets that sense again. Wait a minute, there's something here. This almost, if it weren't, for it coming up right next to the name senses, right next to the claimant senses. I don't think it would seem so odd to us. An awareness of arrival out there? Well, that's not an uncommon story. I know that he's out there, and I know that eventually it will come to blows, and when it does, only one of us will walk away. Dun dun dun! Or, but right before I opened the door, I felt something wrong. There was no sign that anyone was within, but I knew beyond that portal lurked insert rival name here. Dun dun dun! And while under this interpretation is still a notable sense for arrival, 
to me, it would not then necessarily read as terribly aberrant. That's that's fair, I suppose. Um, do you think then that Eris is a as a role is opposed to the squire, or is this simply this specific heiress inserting herself as a rival to these specific squires? Obviously, some names are going to come with an inbuilt rival. Black Knight, White Knight, for instance, seems like an obvious one. But, or maybe that's more of a nemesis. Maybe there's a difference between a nemesis and a rival. A rival being ostensibly on the same side, pursuing the same or different goals from different angles. Eris is a rival to the squire, but not they're not, you know, opposed in the grand scheme of things. They're both villains. They're both Precy or apprentice to Precy, working on the Precy side. They're both a transition name that's working its way up towards a pretty important role within the Precy government. I don't know. Maybe maybe that is just the case. I wonder if um, we have Eris, we have Squire. I wonder if the geography were different if the location of this were different if and if the person who had the role were different if apprentice would be a potential rival for similar reasons just based on how pricey politics work it seems very conceivable and while i certainly cannot say whether eris and squire are naturally opposed names necessarily i suspect that this rut is easier for them to fall into because the previous squire Black had some kind of disagreement with the heir. Again, in chapter 10, uh, Eris says, No one rules forever, Lord Black. And you may have beaten the heir back when you were squire, but she is not you, and I am not him. And every time a story happens, it's a little more likely to happen. Possibly in three generations, we'll see a warden spring up every generation to kill the next dead king who's ruled for a thousand years, you know? Truly a tale as old as time. All right, I, I can get behind that. A lot of conjecture here, of course, but yeah, I I, I think that clears things up for me. So I, I appreciate your reading of this and your memory of, you know, something that happened two episodes ago, which there's no chance I would remember that. So thank you. Let's listen to all of the episodes before we record, just in case. That's very smart right now and going to be physically impossible a few books down the line i layer them over each other it saves a lot of time uh you listen to them all at once that makes sense that's an interesting way to define that word <laughs> the <laughs> after uh after cat tries to warn chider and tamika mostly chider i guess she's is who she's talking to here Chider makes a claim that is a very high claim, something that seems absurdly big and notable, but is also based on an incredibly low bar. She says, the tribes, here meaning the goblins, the tribes have done more for praise than all of the high lords put together. Honestly, yeah, that that checks out. Story of the goblins is given an appropriate amount of time in the entirety of the guide for what the story of the guide is. But it'd be wonderful to see more about it. They've got a really fascinating struggle. And even Catherine can acknowledge the compelling nature of it. She says, I could sympathize with Chider's feelings. I really could. 
I knew what it was like being part of a system where the best you could ever manage was being slightly above the bottom of the barrel. But her way apparently involved my being a corpse, and that wasn't really a point I could compromise on. Catherine is recognizing their shared difficulty. Catherine is recognizing the class structure of the Empire. She's recognizing that the lower classes need to unite against the rulers. A very workers of the world unite style thing, except more like peasants of the world unite. Which is all to say, I think Kat is beginning to understand class struggle, and just keep that in mind. And that's definitely a, a through line from now th- till the end of the story when Kat becomes queen of all of Callow and also kind of queen of all named and orders thousands of soldiers to their deaths to pursue her political aims. Yeah, Kat's a socialist hero. I know that most people have not read Capital, but it is commonly known that the ultimate conclusion that Marx draws is that the solution to the struggles of capitalism is for every worker to become a monarch. So what you're saying is... If every worker is a monarch, actually, Kropotkin is probably the guy to go to. It's a weird way to put it, but... The cat's just ahead of her game, ahead of the, her time. She's leading the charge towards monarchy. Non-hierarchical socialist monarchy. Right. But what was that sound? An explosion! A burst of green light! Fighter does something pretty drastic and uses goblin fire. This is the our first real exposure to goblin fire in the story. It's a defining... <laughs> I mentioned earlier the birth of Cat's legend in burning down a building and stabbing people who come out. This is the next step in that legend. She combines that plan with this tool a few times. Goblin fire is terrifying and it's pretty cool and interesting and it's a fun thing in the story to to have there this basically i don't know ultimate weapon that burns pretty much anything including magic it this is this is where it shows up we get a brief picture of it and we basically know it burns metal and they mention water and magic but we basically just see it being a special fire right now a special fire with a beautiful fantasy epic explanation. Cat knows enough of it to tell us seven days and seven nights it would keep burning, impossible to put out until it stopped on its own. That's just cool. End of commentary. It is. And it's also remarkable for being to our eyes and, you know, within the story uh, to some extent. It lasts for a holy number of days, which is especially weird for Goblin Fire since I would say it's pretty far from being holy. My belief is that when the goblins originally produced it, it burned for nine days and eight nights. And they said, well, that's pretty good. But could we make it a little more profane? And they had to do a lot of development over years to scale it down to seven days and seven nights. Or it just burned those extra days and nights off itself. Oh, that makes a lot of sense, actually. So Catherine knows of Goblin Fire. She knows these details about it she's aware of it and appears to be a reliable source about it she is not however reliable when she says new plan then get the hells out of here before the royal foundry got turned into the closest thing to the actual hells that could be managed on creation wakesa has done better than goblin fire could wakesa can erode 
the actual barrier between creation and the hells. What case can bring the hells to creation? Catherine is dealing with something horrifying and mighty, but this is still small potatoes. This is really, really good alchemy. Cat, two of Cat's dearest, hmm, two of Cat's closest companions. I was going to say dearest friends, but that's not quite true. Are capable of doing more than goblin fire by the end of this story, as far as getting creation to be more like the hells. She's right to be fearful of goblin fire, but again, her sense of scale, a little skewed. But despite that, despite not fully understanding exactly what is meant by the hells, Kat in this fight here, dealing with uh, Rashid, who shows up because of course he does, she levels one of her more reasonable complaints. And reasonable, I say here, meaning reasonable, and also I mean it as a an eyebrow raise in Kat's direction, because this isn't the sort of thing that I would expect to come from her. He Rashid comes in and is looking forward to finishing this, uh, fighting Kat, and she says, Really, Rashid? We're going to have a duel to the death in the middle of a foundry full of goblin fire? Couldn't we at least move to the other room? The cat I know and love wouldn't have hesitated to fight here. But the cat who wants to survive? Uh, honestly, good call. Goblin fire is not something to mess with. And veering again from sensibility to insensibility, Cat assesses Rashid and notices that the wound she inflicted on him doesn't seem to be slowing him down and concludes that he'd apparently found a healer in the last two days. And I just think it's weird to put it that way. He'd apparently found a healer, as though healers are a difficult resource to access when pit-fighting orphan Cat was able to locate a healer when she wasn't even particularly supposed to be out and about. Given two days, I, I don't see how Rashid would fail to find a healer. It's like that book by Laura Numeroff. If you give it to Grubby a major hand wound, right? It is exactly like that book, yeah. yeah that's, a, that's a good reference to draw here. If you give it to Grubby a grievous hand wound, he will request a healer. If you give it to Grubby a healer, he will request a duel to the death around Goblin Fire. If you give it to Grubby a duel to the death around Goblin Fire, you'll give him a grievous wound. If you give it to Grubby a grievous wound, he's dead now, don't worry about it. Read that story. I mean, I guess I am right now. I'd read that that children's book not read if you give a mouse a cookie for probably decades you're missing out i've read it within the last few months it's pretty good holds up yeah he is not dead yet in fact he does very well in the fight he reaches the point where it seems that victory is about to fall into his lap and catherine recognizes it and he purrs in response this is ee's word not my own there is the look i was waiting for the moment where you finally understand your place in the world. And for the first and last time, in all of A Practical Guide to Evil, Catherine Wright said she was in too much pain to think of a proper response. He beat the quips out of her. This is her lowest point. It is basically her lowest point until much, much later. She even says, or thinks, I'm going to die here. Out, barring the times where Cat, you know, actually dies this is pretty much the closest to cat's story ending to this being the end of cat as a character in colernia outside of when she is watching winter get devoured around her this is 
yeah, this is uh this is not a good situation for for our girl. Even the ending of her story is very clearly not the end of her story. Right. These early chapters are just a whole lot. And at the same time, these early chapters are so much of not the things you consider the story to be. We don't have little orc friend. We don't have pudgy little wizard boy. We don't have whippy pain in the neck and also part-time lover. We don't have Vivian's whole difficulties. We don't even really have Eris yet. And yet Eris beat all the rest of them? What? Like, she hasn't even been trained yet. She laments that fact, in fact. She says she's about to be killed in an abandoned factory by some idiot wearing a mask who just happened to be better with a blade. And I I thought that that line really stood out to me. Kat often talks about, thinks about the training effort, the time it takes to be good at something. She, you know, a role definitely cheats there quite a bit, but she puts in the time to master what she does. She becomes the top of many fields throughout her life. But here, when somebody has done that same thing and is beating her because of it, she she acts like it's luck. He just happens to be better with a blade. It it really feels like uh, maybe a coping mechanism for, for Kat that, oh, I'm losing it because of something out of my control rather than because he was a better fighter than me, thanks to the hours of work he's put in and the experiences he's had. It's, I would say it's not a good look for Cat, but it's very Cat, so, you know, uh, we'll let it slide. It's a coping mechanism. It's, you know, just an attempt to struggle her way out of being to blame for her own death. And maybe even an attempt to struggle out of her death. She struggles and struggles. She struggles, struggles. I'm I'm sorry, I'm trying to say the aspect, but it's not doing the like reverberation thing. What's wrong with this? Struggle. We talked about speaking not being bolded when Black did it to Mazus's whole court and chalked that up to, oh, maybe Kat's not aware yet, and so it doesn't get the same in-story weight. But it very well could be, based on the fact that struggle here is just italicized, that there's one of two things that I'm seeing here. Either EE simply hasn't nailed down the formatting yet, which is completely understandable and fine in this medium. It's a web serial. It takes some time to figure things out, and that's part of the medium. Alternatively, Kat's still a claimant to the name, and so she has access to her potential aspects, but isn't fully using them, so she can struggle and benefit, but it's not quite an aspect and therefore it doesn't get the formatting we're used to the bolding. I don't know. For those who are not actively reading along with us here, struggle when Kat uses struggle in this chapter, the word is simply italicized. That that's what I'm referring to. That better get fixed. So Catherine begins to come into her own with the acquisition of struggle. Struggle. And we know what Catherine becomes. She ends up a priestess of a Dark God granting her a more indirect vast well of power. Catherine is not a battering ram, though the sheer scale of her power can provide that. Catherine may not be a thief, but she's certainly a something or other in the night. Okay, so night works, but struggled. But she's a capable combatant, but often indirect, often relying on prowess, 
often relying on clever moves and careful masteries. And I really appreciate the visceral, physical carnality of her struggling here. Uh, it says, I rammed my fist into his mask, shattering the clay like the cheap affectation that it was. The scimitar came up, but I grabbed him by the throat and threw him against a table. There is no skill, no last-minute strokes of genius. She grabs him and slams him down. She hulks out. Catherine doesn't hulk out much. She doesn't. It, it makes sense, though, that despite everything you're saying, and that which I fully agree with, of course, she she comes from a pit-fighting background where she is pretty much permanently the underdog. She's tiny. She's young. She focuses more on quips a lot of times than on maneuvers, physical maneuvers. But her aspect helps make up the difference there. The struggle is coming from behind in in an impossible situation and winning anyway. And it makes sense that it would be a particularly brutal outpouring of that power. She's a pit fighter. That's where this comes from. That's what she goes back to. Using fists, slamming people down, <laughs> grabbing them by the throat. Yeah, it, it makes sense to me. It's it, it's a very cool tie-in to tie into where that power comes from, where that where in the narrative that ability is born. But like we said, this is still she's not fully the squire yet she's still a claimant which makes it interesting that in the next sentence after what you just read she says my name pulsed under my skin like a living thing feeding on the fight my name i understand that she's turned things around she's moving in the right direction but it does seem to be counting the piglets before they hatch i think that works a little bit it's not really her name it's still up in the air who that name belongs to it's not her name yet but give it 1843 words or 9926 characters we'll get there the second half of this thank you by the way that's good information to have but the second half of the sentence is also i think worth getting into a little bit um she says my name pulsed under my skin like a living thing feeding on the fight it's her aspect here being powered by her name it's the aspect is part of the name. So there's a little of a bit of a blur there. But our interest in sort of feeling out the difference between a, the mantle and the named, the person and the power that they have, I think this is useful here that the mantle is a distinct thing within her. She says like a living thing, but feeling it within her, feeling it as this separate power source rather than her own power it's it makes it feel very much a foreign entity within her it's it's very separate from cat herself and i think that's true for cat very frequently i mean we have the famous and omnipresent for uh, much of the story the beast uh, it, this is one instance where having more perspectives is useful and i really I really want to dive into that as we get, start getting interlude chapters and start seeing when other people are referring to their names, how they describe it. If this is Kat, how much of this specific instance and how and throughout the story, how much of it is Kat's dramatic nature shining through and how much is a universal named experience as much as there can be one of those. I don't know. It's just a, a very clear 
there's me and then there's my role in this sentence. Very curious whether now operating with this awareness, operating under this lens, whether we'll view any sort of separation as the warden comes into play. But that is neither here nor, well, rather, that it's not here, but rather there. And here, Catherine just reads up Rashid, stabs him a bit, punches the tip of her blade through his throat. Quick and easy. Nice and clean. Nice and clean. And as he's about to die, he starts to say something. He says, I, he snarled. He snarls here. And Cat finishes for him. Got stepped on. Cockroach. Previously, Rashid had referred to her as a cockroach. I gotta say, this is Cat's like, combat. This is Cat killing someone in combat. Her first kill of somebody who's important to the story for themselves rather than as a movement of Kat's story, I suppose. And she kind of goes hard on it. I'm not going to lie to you. She To kill someone with that callback and to tell them they're getting stepped on, oh, very. it's a very powerful move for Kat. Speaking of powerful moves, after finishing off Rashid, she starts thinking through what's going to come. She realizes that the um, aspect she had tapped into has worn her out. And then she thinks, and I don't think that little burst is going to happen again. Not tonight, anyway. There are aspects throughout the story that are constantly in action, that are constantly, so to speak, on. The famous examples being rangers. There's some that are very frequently available. You know, when Cat is the warden, her sensory aspect kind of lets her use it very frequently. Um, and there are a few other examples like that. It seems like Scribe is using aspects very frequently. Um, Roland seems to have a, a pretty easy access to some of them. There are aspects that are one-offs, like they can be done exactly one time before <laughs> whatever it is, the day is up or a certain pivotal event happens. I the When I read this, I was thinking of Warlock for that. Um, he definitely seems like he's got some very powerful options that are just sort of, I do this thing, it wins me the fight, but I can't get in any other fights. You know, very Dungeons and Dragons wizard style. But all of these aspects, you kind of have to feel out what how frequently they can be used or how long they last on your own, because every aspect is pretty different from any other aspect. And it's cool to see that after using it without knowing, without there being like a instruction manual, without her trying to use struggle again, she just knows, uh, she's learned through the use of it that, yep, I can use this aspect one time and then it's got more or less a cooldown, which makes sense for something like struggle. If you have an aspect meant to give you enough power to come out of a situation where you are definitely the underdog and you have that going all the time, you're really never actually the underdog. But I don't know, it's it's interesting to see learning about aspects on the fly like this. Very nicely high fantasy. You will know your power when you receive it. It will re- reveal itself to you. And it especially works with these names where she is claiming it, where she takes an active role in actively taking her role. But I'm sorry, this sentence bothers me. It's not going to happen again, not tonight anyway. With the last look at the boy I just murdered, I stepped into the smoke. I'm willing to concede that Kat was out to murder him, that that was a goal on her list, but he appeared out of nowhere and was working to kill her. 
And while self-defense defenses can absolutely be used to cover up actual murders, it was him or her at that point. And I don't think intention to murder someone outside of a point where you have to kill them for another reason makes it a murder. Also, murder is a legal designation, and Catherine is above the law. Eh. Murder is definitely, the word choice is definitely interesting. It makes sense for Kat, who's so new to her whole (laughs) new situation, to still think in terms of murder, I would say. But yeah, I also raised an eyebrow at that line. Let her thoughts be bloody or nothing worth, am I right? Absolutely. So at this point, she's won. Does she go back to black? So Kat gets in another fight pretty much immediately, but... Okay, summarize the entire series in a sentence, why don't you? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, fair enough. But before she does that, she steps out and sees Tamika fighting the Lone Swordsman. Well, actually, she sees Tamika's fighting the Lone Swordsman because there's... Tamikai. Tamikai, thank you. There's two of her now, which apparently is Tamika's name, or maybe proto-aspect that she has access to, like Rashid's stealth thing and Chider's being a goblin thing. I don't know that we see what Chider can do. Yeah, you're right. There's two Tamik guys, and they are driving the Lone Swordsman back. They're maybe not winning, but they have the momentum on their side. And this one scene really got me thinking about this entire fight. Am I wrong in feeling like William is bad at fighting he is losing to tamika later on cat gets the better of him he doesn't just win these fights he's got a name that has the word swordsman right in it why is he losing a fight in melee to a claimant and this claimant is not grabbing is not a claimant to the saint of swords or something like that this claimant is grabbing squire which is a martial name sure but it's also a transitioning name and not a necessarily entirely fighting focused name there's more to it than that and i don't know it seems like william is maybe not good at fighting despite his name and i'm wondering if that is because his name is the lone swordsman and he is in this instance leading a rebellion he's in a group he's not standing alone he's showing up and helping this group with their you know polygraph initiation technique but unlike the polygraph it's actually real many cops <laughs> will use this technique it is not real never consent very very true i'm wondering if the lone swordsman is not a swordsman's in the name he's a fighter he's going to fight he should be good at it but is the Lone Swordsman weak because he's around other people, allies? Like, does he fight best when he's actually alone? Does he, is the Swordsman not a duelist name? Is when it's a one on one fight, are his aspects geared towards gr- fighting groups of enemies or something? Or, you know, there's a pair of enemies here, so maybe not. Is this a simple case of he already got in a fight today and used all of his aspects because he doesn't know how to strategically hold on to some of them? I don't know. It's it's just weird that he struggles so much and not in the cool way, just like actually can't win a fight, despite being the swordsman. I, of course, don't have the answer because unlike EE, I am not all-knowing. But my immediate thought when you were saying that was he must be working against his name. Otherwise, of course, he would have to win. 
But how is he working against his name? He's fighting alone against overwhelming odds, but he's not alone, is he? It's very anime. The hearts of his people go with him, and that's the worst thing that can happen. Thinking forward, too, he's later in a band of five and loses some more. I don't know. Maybe he just got this name, and then rather than continuing on with what he was doing, because he must have been a lone swordsman, you know, not the name, but just a descriptor when he got the name. Otherwise, he wouldn't have. And then that gave him power and fame, and he transitioned into a new role, lowercase r, that is not making the best use of his name? I, I don't know. It's it's weird. Or maybe William just is bad and should feel bad. No, he's good. Don't forget that part. Oh, very important. Thank you. I think he is pretty good, since Catherine herself might end up surrendering to him. She, he, Sorry, she has a question for him. Yeah, he refuses he, it. She interrupts the fight to say that she's got a question for William, and his response to that is to just say no. You know, classic cat fashion. I could have been offering my surrender. And his reaction is not to doubt her fully, not to ignore her, but to squint at her and say, are you? I know that Willie is Cat's first nemesis, I suppose. He's what she's also he's also a pawn of hers. And he's insufferable in the best way. He is just a special boy, you know? He absolutely is a special boy. He's contrition special little boy, as we will learn. He is contrition special boy. And he's also extremely Callowin. There's uh, this back and forth where Cat basically... You don't have to be mean to him. Cat <laughs> basically asks if they can team up to fight off the rest of the claimants. And he doesn't seem interested at first. And then he looks over to her and says, you're Callowin, aren't you? And that's good enough for him. He he doesn't need anything else. She may be a villain and evil and has betrayed her country and he wants her dead, but she's Callowin. So he can make an agreement in the now to fight off the, the greater threat, while, of course, his burning grudge for her only grows because gotta get that Callowin vengeance. There is no other moral choice. I know we're in the middle of a fight, but let's cast our minds back to a sexier time. Gladly. Remember that Elise girl and the nudity? Of course. And how she saw a whole bunch of cat? Naturally. Was inspecting cat for an eye? As one does. I just love what it says about the setting. That cat realizes she's not weaponless and writes, My left hand reached for the knife I'd won by slitting two throats. The sheath hidden in the small of my back. She gets checked over for, you know, an evil spy tattoo. And she's just got a knife hidden in the small of her back. And that's normal. Like, sure, of course you have that. Days like these and all. I'm sure every person in the Lost Crown, that's what it's called, yeah? Yes. I'm sure every person in the Lost Crown had a knife hidden somewhere on their person, let alone the sons gathered at the meeting that Kat so rudely interrupted. She was invited. Fair. That Tamika and Chider so rudely interrupted. Amen. Speaking of Chider, though, I don't know how much I really followed the course of events in my first read-through of this, because why would I know what was going on? I was just reading, you know? Mm -hmm. There's a big difference between reading and reading for presentation, and 
The difference is the second time you actually have to know what you're reading. But Catherine ends up doing very badly. She's feeling a little under the weather. She's taking a nice lie down, uh, dying. The Tamikai are vanquished. Rashid got stepped on, cockroach. Eris doesn't count. And Chider is still somewhere doing something. And then we get... I'm not sure how long I lay there. I could still hear things, but events came disjointed. A flash of blinding light and the sound of wood breaking. Three claps of thunder. Or was it five? Blah, blah, blah. And then it clicked. Awareness flooded back to me. I don't know what happened to Chider. You don't know what happened to Chider. Something very goblin happened to Chider with flashes and claps of thunder. But that's an off-screen death right there. And I just didn't catch that the first time. I just accepted Chider died at some point. But we do get that much, and I think that's cool. Yeah, I think the first read-through... i reader. <laughs> I mean, that's very fair. Um, you had hundreds of chapters to read when you jumped into this story the first time. Unlike now, where we have hundreds of chapters to read and talk about. I, I think you have to have some familiarity with goblins to instantly recognize what the Claps of Thunder is referring to. Yes, in the story so far, we know that Chider has goblin munitions in her pockets, fine. But it takes some level of understanding of what goblins are and do to get, I think, that to, to quickly get. Yep, that's what that means. This is referring to Chider, because of course it is. The reread really helps with that, and I agree that on the first read-through, Chider's fate was kind of a big question mark. Maybe a small question mark. With that death, Catherine comes back to life. She does. And obviously she's becoming a squire. Like that's what this is. She is stepping into the role fully. No more proto aspects, no more claimancy. She is the squire. And in that moment of becoming this villain, be taking on the role for fully, putting on the mantle, she's also like dying. And I one I wonder if the story, not the thing we're reading, not what E.E. wrote, but the in-universe story, the narrative, the the rut that she's in here. Could she have died in this moment? I don't think her name is healing her necessarily in the way that we might understand it or that she might understand it. But with the way this story was going, the direction the narrative was heading, her dying here would have been wrong. It would not have completed the story. It would have been not a story. It would have been nothing. All of this would have amounted to nothing. I don't mean to say Cat has plot armor in the derogatory sense, but I'm wondering if in this instance, creation decided, nope, Cat's going to survive. And there was pretty much nothing anybody could do about that. Well, it wouldn't be creation's first mistake. Nor its last. I would agree entirely. Because of course Cat can't die here. That, 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 that she can't. Sorry. But she can't live she she is dying and dying means not living i am something of a linguist uh and what she does is monstrous we are used to this at this point because this is just one of her things you know this cat being cat but she says i've seen a corpse raised before i cackled to myself hacking out a horrible laugh blah 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 it occurred to me i was making a puppet of myself and i let out another cackle well, better me than someone else. All this cackling, Cat, we know, does become, but here is really setting herself up as the beginning of a story to be 
the greatest villain since and possibly exceeding Dread Empress Triumphant. May she never return. Amen. But this one of those moments in the story where you see why it's so easy to think perhaps Catherine will one day climb the tower. All it takes is little necromancy and a lot of cackling. Triumph's uh, fate is a question mark, but only what the sequence of events in the fate was. As she puppets herself down the road, the street was deserted, though close to the mouth of it, I found black goblin's blood. Side note, we've got a chromatic detail here. Very fun. Mm -hmm. uh, splash on the pavement stones. Chider's satchel laid there unattended, spilled open by a sword strike. There were still munitions in it, I saw. Absent-mindedly, I picked up a sharper, but the longer I looked at it, the more my mind began to wander. She's fallen apart. He's... I think falling apart or fallen apart is way too passive a verb for what's going on with Kat. He's a fallen soul. I suppose that works. She, uh, in this moment, she looks up at the outer walls of the city and sees, <laughs> I'll just read this line. Up there on the ramparts, I caught sight of a coat fluttering dramatically. William is well established to be an anime. I, I don't think anybody could argue that. Is standing on the walls at night while your coat flutters around you is that how he powers up for his fights like is that is that his charging up animation <laughs> because this guy is something else it's actually the impression it was his idol animation <laughs> yeah but more importantly cat heads up and using her superpowered zombie strength disarms the lone swordsman and again he's now completely alone unless you count the hearts of Kalo, which I won't discount. Very well could be the case here. And he still loses pretty immediately. Is this just the cat ascendant storyline? So nobody stood a chance against her? Or is William really just bad? I, I He does not do well. He's trying his best. He's trying his best and is caught off guard and is utterly aghast. Well, I guess cat's closer to than he is he's horrified by Pat puppeting herself <laughs> incredulously he asks her you planned to become a necromantic abomination i know that he doesn't really know who cat is yet but those of us who do this is such a tame thing for cat to be doing honestly no he's still rightfully confused for most of the book cat's best plan her default plan at the very least the best plan she can usually come up with is chaos her best plan is let's not have a plan for anyone. That's the shock here. You're just misreading it. Notice there's italics on plan. Of course, she was going to become an, a necromantic abomination. But you planned to become a necromantic abomination? He said aghast. He knows what kind of protagonist Cat is. I, he knows? That's giving a lot of credit to Willie. I want to disagree, but just because the truth is mean. So how do you pronounce the name of the river? That's a really good question. What language is the river named in? That could provide our first hint. Well, I'm wondering if it's I'm wondering if it's um Dwarith because boy, let me let, let's grab a map. So, it's Caloin. Was it named by Caloins because Caloins are extremely, you know, Western European and that spelling doesn't feel very Western European to me. I mean, in German you could use A-E instead of A-Umlaut, but we know where German is, and it's not there. 
Let's look up AE in Old English. But you have to say, that actually does feel like it would fit in uh, Beowulf. AE. In Old English, AE represented sound between A and E, very much like the short A of cat. If we make it Old English, it would be something like Huerta. Huerte. I'm not sure if the E was schwad at that point. If it's Latin, it's an abomination. Latin seems unlikely to me. Huerte. And HW is a pretty Old English thing, actually. So does that mean I would never leaving? have brought that into any Kalernian etymological investigation, but it looks really Old English when you give it to me that way. Huerta. So then maybe it's just... I mean, Kalo is pretty, like I said, Western European, but also pretty Northern European in, I mean, it's it's England-ish. That works. An ancient river in Kalo could have a pretty old English name. I, that could work pretty well linguistically. I, I'd be willing to go with that. Huerta. Huerta? I suppose. That's what we can go with right. for now. Yeah. Uh, moving away from this, as the R pains me. You know how... Most scholars hold that Dolly Parton was able to do with 9 to 5 what Karl Marx did with the entirety of Capital. Yes, we're back on this. Mm -hmm. You knew what you were signing up for when you started listening to this podcast, my dear listeners. Actually, you had no idea, but by this point, you know. Yeah, I would hope so. Well, what Karl Marx was able to do in about 300,000 words in English translation, EE was able to do in a couple million, because you see the central thesis of Practical Guide to Evil, is really the apparent inescapability of capitalism. Though, obviously, E.E. takes Ursula K. Le Guin's standpoint and says that the power of capitalism seems inescapable, but then so did the divine right of king. He's just setting it back here with divine right of kings. Catherine is asked by the lone swordsman when the silence gets awkward, you're Callowin. We should be fighting side by side, not against each other. Why do you work for them? How can you possibly justify working for these tyrants? Who else is there to work for? I managed to get out my voice so rough I could barely recognize it as my own. There you go. Catherine recognizes that there is no ethical labor under capitalism, despite living in a feudal society. Well, pre-capitalist anyway. It really does seem like this long-form essay is really front-loaded with all of its arguments. It's pretty good form to make sure your reader knows what they're getting into. If you don't know what your article is about before the millionth word, you might be do a rewrite. Yeah, but rewrites take a long time, so eh. You know it doesn't take a long time? What's that? Making wide, sweeping generalizations based on very little information. Oh, like Kat does. Does she? Well, the Lone Swordsman offers some nonsense. If, if even one person fights under the banner, the kingdom still lives. And Kat's internal response is laden with an eye roll, a mockery. She's just a one-word, heroes. Hey, this is the first hero that Kat has met? And she's generalizing heroes like some old pro that knows what they're all about and what they always tend to do. She's not wrong, but she's jumping the gun a little bit here. I love her. Of course. She... Clearly does not have a high opinion of William at this point. He's a hero. And she's got the better of him in this brief scuffle, this argument. And he says a line that's incredibly powerful. He says, so I should kneel and lick the enemy's boot like you do? 
never. I'd rather die. And Kat thinks to herself, I could kill him. Right now, right here, I knew deep in my bones that I could kill him. I might not be able to next time we met, but this once, the story's flow was in my favor. She's very new to this, but she knows she's winning this argument because William is William. She won the brief scuffle. She survived his killing stroke. Well, survived is maybe a strong word. She's still around after his killing stroke. She's got the new name. He just said, I'd rather die. She has all of the story backing her up right here. And she could end the story in a nice little bow. She could tie a little bow on it, move forward. She would have the renown of having defeated the hero that was plaguing the city. She would increase her prestige. She would probably get a nice pat on the back from Captain. I was about to say Black, but that's not his style. Not appreciatively. There you go. It, it's And then tell her what she did wrong. <laughs> of course. <laughs> but the we were talking about Kat's attaining her name, ascending to her name, and living because of that. And all of that story is coming to this point. And she creates another path. She veers from what the entire story is telling her to do. It's, I think, we'll talk about this next chapter or next episode. I don't think this is what I'm talking about right now is why her name stops working briefly, temporarily. It's more to do with the philosophical underpinnings for why, but the failure to complete the story this soon after getting her name, I think it really sets a tone for all of Kat's mantles, all of the roles that she interacts with, how her name specifically grow and what her story ends up being. She is at the pinnacle of being able to do the thing that would complete the story that would win her what she's doing. And she says, no, I have a better plan than what creation has set before me. That's exceptional. I don't think I ever put together all the pieces of it. Like, that's the advantage of the story, about stories. It can be vibe-based, you know? Because we are familiar with stories. Because, I mean, I don't know about you, but I've read over 12 stories in my life. This is, we know how it goes. We know how it goes. You don't have to recognize all the pieces, even though you can pick them apart. But she wins the argument, she survives the death blow, she gets her new name, I'd rather die. That's a plain mathematical formula. I love it. That's all. I love it. My heart is full of love. I'm right there with you. A real a real Marius we are. Catherine doesn't know everything about names, I think. I think you're right. Because she sets herself up for total destruction. Even without patterns of three, which, frankly, are a practical guide to evil thing more than they are a real-life story element, we often have similar patterns, but they're not the powerful rule, I think, that they are in the guide-verse. If there were four meetings, or two meetings, or the villain won the first two, and on the third, the hero vanquished, or the you know, I'm fine with that. I don't think mm. that's a great abomination. I think that's a very guide thing to be so stuck in the pattern of three. Sure. But even without that pattern, Catherine is setting up a petard by which she might be hoisted. Because rather than killing him in response to I'd rather die, she says, prove it. If you want your way to beat mine, then come at me again properly. Earn your name, hero. 
Run and hide and muster your armies in the dark. <laughs> Make deals you'll regret until you have nothing left to bargain with. I'll be waiting for you on the other side of that battlefield. Okay, make yourself the villain who has to be defeated. Spoiler, the villain gets defeated. Yeah. Stories. She really does set herself up to lose this war by with that line. She ends up losing. Not the war, but the battle. Yeah. And following this mistake, it seems, she shoves him off the wall, which is sparing his life, obviously. And she thinks the line, with a life spared, I'd just killed thousands. Yep. Glad that she's not someone to quibble over a life or two in pursuit of a positive end. I'm sure she will remain consistent with that. It is such... Cat is pretty hypocritical, kind of frequently, and that's great. It It's part of who she is, and that's you know, it's not a criticism of the story. It's great to have a protagonist who has that. I'd call it a flaw, but it's just a trait for Kat. This one is such a quick turnaround narratively because there's that line and the very next chapter, she wrestles with that and ignores that concept. She's kind of all over the map next chapter in regards to this theme, but she does recognize that what she's done is kill a lot of people. I don't know. This is this is such a powerful moment. This end of this chapter is such a huge foundational moment for Cat, for the guide as a whole, for for Callow, for Colernia, for Colernia. Absolutely, it's. I don't know. It, all, a lot of these early chapters, some a lot of the events kind of bleed together, and they happened so long ago for me. But this this scene, this is such a powerful scene. This is this is a scene that when you discuss any part of the guide, you kind of can reference this scene and have it be pretty relevant. It's absolutely foundational. And then, of course, Black finally shows up. Oh, he's not actually named, which is really cool. I surprised to see this i just noticed but uh, i'll risk copyright violations and read the last four lines of the story of this chapter busy night someone murmured i opened my eyes and came face to face with eerie green ones i got stabbed i mumbled a lot happens to the best of us squire the dark-haired man murmured and i felt his hand on my shoulder before darkness took me it doesn't actually say that it's black just some guy with green eyes and dark hair and a sense of humor this is a cat perspective chapter, so that's as good as like listing his full name. Trying to figure out if there was a goof for full name. Oh yeah, Amadea is funny middle name black, but no. Uh, but no, no. what I really his, appreciate here, his his full name would be Black Amadeus Knight. That way he can be Mister Knight. Thank you. You're welcome. Go ahead with your thought. But the other thing I appreciate is the foreshadowing. I got stabbed. I mumbled a lot. And Black, whose fate we all know. And if you don't, you should get out of here because I'm about to tell you how Catherine stabs him. Says, happens to the best of us, Squire. And he gets stabbed to death at the end by Catherine. He does. That's some That's some powerful <laughs> auto-foreshadowing by Black. But just like Cat ensures that Black's time run runs out, so too has ours. Join us next time on Podcast Guys Talking to Rata Grata as we discuss... Childhood memories. Teenage traumas. And adult atrocities. We will see you then.
Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a fan-made podcast discussing Erratic Errata's A Practical Guide to Evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was The Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Music for the epigraph was Epicness, short 26 sec, by Bertie Sounds. Outro music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine, is Price of Freedom by Daddy S. Music. This music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com music. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at TheLongPrice. Do you have questions, comments, or contributions? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Email us at thelongprice at gmail.com. If you'd like to materially support our work, find our Patreon at patreon.com slash p-g-t-e-e. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name. Receive personalized stories and art, or even join a PGTE-inspired RPG. We implore you, don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make this all possible. Special thanks to our patron and liege, always the claimant, never the named, as well as the hordes of cattle below. Next week, Chapter 13, Order. Order.